Welcome to Audiobook Test Drive. In today's episode, we are featuring an excerpt from Where Do We Go From Here, written by Paul Woodward. A failed interracial affair, a parish scandal, and two murders. Oh my! This is the much-awaited sequel to Woodward's riveting There Is Something You Should Know. The book opens with Jim Bonds picking up the pieces of his interracial affair with Jade Wilson and the parish scandal he uncovered in St. Louis. No sooner does Bonds settle into an executive position in a huge church than he loses his professional mentor and finds himself a potential suspect in the murder of a prostitute. While the trauma readies him for an even more challenging event, the murders of two people close to him, it does not help him resolve his feelings for Jade. This realistic, first-rate page-turner vibrates with the gritty realities of a major city, life and death, the saints and sinners, the good and evil. Woodward puts the listener in the head of Jim, and he keeps surprising us with twists and turns in this incredible story. And now for your listening pleasure, an excerpt from Where Do We Go From Here? Chapter 1. Reset. Jim could not believe it. It was so bizarre. Just three days after he met with Monsignor Stevens, it hit the public airwaves. There it was on the front page of the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Prominent Catholic priest in sex scandal. No one would miss it. He quickly tore into the article. Father Cecil Fenny, 60 a leading figure in the archdiocese and the senior pastor of Holy Spirit Catholic Church, has been charged with sexual misconduct involving underage boys. The first line pulled no punches. Jim's eyes raced down the rest of the article, looking for a mention of 43-year-old Father James Bonds. It wasn't there. The archdiocese had outed Fenny, but kept him safe. How is that possible? Jim had admitted to having lived in consistent violation of his celibacy vows when he reported Fenny to the archdiocese. In a sense, he was no less guilty than Fenny. His celibacy vow was rooted in his being married to the church. In his relationship with Jade Wilson, he had lived in the Catholic version of adultery. In fact, it was largely his own guilt that drove him to reveal the wrongdoings of which he had become aware. He had ratted out Fenny to Monsignor Stevens probably ending Fenny's distinguished career in a maze of public humiliation, with no public fallout of his own. At least not yet. Not ever. A week after his meeting with Stevens, Jim received a letter directing him to make an appointment with Father Thomas O'Dell, Director of Pastoral Counseling, at the offices of the Archdiocese. He looked at the letter and read the title again, Director of Pastoral Counseling. The letter had no punitive ring about it at all. He met with Odell the following Tuesday. Father Odell was a tall, lean, white-haired man in his sixties, with the mien of a pastor, more than a psychologist. Come in, Father Bonds, he said, shaking Jim's hand at the door. Have a seat, pointing to a chair directly across from his large, nicely polished mahogany desk. Odell had an officious air, not the kind of person you would call Tom. He leaned forward, 
locking his eyes on Jim. I want to tell you that I am gratified that you came forward voluntarily to confess your own transgressions and shed light on the unholy activities at Holy Spirit. Words like gratified, transgressions, and unholy lined perfectly with Odell's demeanor. I felt compelled to do so, Father Odell. I could no longer live a life of secrets. Let's talk about you in this matter, said Odell, speaking slowly. The Church will deal with any and all others in a different venue. The phrase, any and all others, neatly distanced Fenny, as if he were but one of a number of anonymous cases to be reviewed. You understand that violation of one celibacy vows is a grievous sin, Odell continued austerely, sounding like a Catholic version of Jim's somber Calvinist father. I do. That is why I came forward, Father. I trust you have repented and discontinued this unholy relationship. Jim hadn't been with Jade Wilson for weeks, though neither had declared the relationship over. I have not been wrongfully involved with her for some time, Jim managed, trying to satisfy Odell while remaining inside the boundary of honesty. Fortunately, Odell pursued it no further and changed the subject. Father Bonds, looking at your record, I see you were once married. Can you tell me a bit about that? Jim told Odell of Jewel Pepper, the love of his life, how idyllic the marriage was, and how lost he had been after her death four years later from a vicious form of cancer. I am so sorry for the agonies you have endured, Father Bonds. Odell said as empathically as a person like him could. It has been difficult, was the best Jim could do. You understand that celibacy can be a particularly formidable stricture for priests who once have been married. Jim had never heard the term formidable stricture before. Indeed, we have priests who have been a tad licentious in their youth but that is not the same as the conjugal blessings of holy matrimony. Odell sounded like a prayer book. I understand, Jim said lamely. The conversation went on rather aimlessly for a few minutes, after which Odell pulled a book out of his desk drawer entitled The Holy Vow of Celibacy and handed it to Jim. Here, I want to give this as a gift to you, Father. I trust you will find it an encouragement. Thank you, Father. With that, Odell stood up and extended his hand. Thank you for coming in, Father Bonds. And that was it. The session was over in thirty minutes, with no future meetings scheduled. He was free to go. No suspension. No probation. No disciplinary action. No sanctions at all. Nothing. He never heard from the Archdiocese on the matter again. How could this be, he wondered. Fenny was finished, while the church never laid a glove on Jim. Then it hit him. This was not about sin and repentance. It was about the public image of the church. Fenny had committed the unpardonable sin of bringing public dishonor to the church. Not only was he no longer of value, he was politically untenable, ballast to be thrown overboard. The church had to distance itself from him. 
it might reassign him to a minor position in another diocese out of the public eye. But for all practical purposes, Fenny's career was over. Not so Jim. Not only were his misdeeds private, his public image was celebrated, in addition to his service on the pastoral staff at Holy Spirit. He had resurrected boys' varsity basketball at West Catholic. The once moribund high school, with its basketball program on life support, was now bulging with students as it received glowing press for its recent court dominance. Never mind that much of the basketball success was owed to the brilliance of Ricky Wilson, Jade's son. After the glorious three-year run, the coach, Father James Bonds, was a sports celebrity. No different from a superstar executive at nearby Ralston Purina, Jim Bonds was a tangible asset to the archdiocese, no matter his private sins. No one need know about those. And why did the church go public with this in just three days? Usually charges like these are carefully studied, reviewed very deliberately, before the church takes action. The phone rang in his office. It was the prominent physician, Dr. Joel McIver, the unofficial leader of the group of parents who met with Jim and informed him of Fenny's sexual abuse. The group had wanted Fenny's scalp. Right now. One of the parents at the meeting, Gloria Armour, had issued a veiled threat. Don't let this die, Father, and don't try to cover this up. If you do, you are as guilty as Fenny. You know that, don't you? This is Father Bonds. How may I help you? said Jim as he picked up the phone. Father Bonds, this is Joel McIver. I'm so happy to see the Archdiocese act so quickly, he said. Good to hear from you, Dr. McIver. I am too, but I am very surprised they moved almost immediately. I think I can solve that mystery for you. How's that? Remember you called me, as promised, after you met with Monsignor Stevens, so the group would know that you had done what you could? said McIver. Well, the group had already drafted a letter for the archdiocese, laying out the issues and threatening to go straight to the media if they didn't jump on this thing. The morning we heard from you, I drove to the archdiocese office and delivered the letter to the Monsignor personally. Well, they jumped. On behalf of the parent group, I want to thank you for your diligence, Father Bonds. You've served the church in a selfless and heroic way. The call ended with Jim reeling. Clearly, no one knew about his wrongdoing. If anyone at the archdiocese had breathed a word, the grapevine would have carried the news faster than a telephone wire. Somehow, the lid had been put on the can, and the only casualty was Fenny. Jim was now experiencing a good dose of survivor guilt. Despite the despicable nature of Fenny's behavior, he felt a bit sorry for the deposed pastor, particularly when he contrasted Fenny's fate with his own. He had known about Fenny, but Fenny had not known about him. Now he never would. He wondered if Fenny found out that it was Jim who had turned him in. They had never spoken after his meeting with Monsignor Stevens. Fenny had been on vacation and apparently informed immediately when he got back to St. Louis that he was not to return to Holy Spirit. In any case, Fenny almost had to know, 
as only a member of the clergy would get the official ear of the archdiocese on a charge like those against a priest. At least he had contained his report on Fenning to his misdeeds with the adolescent boys. He hadn't outed him on his gay relationship with Father Mac Cranston, the athletic director at West Catholic. With Fenny out, and Jim working through his guilt, the archdiocese put him in charge of all pastoral activities until it could appoint another senior pastor to replace Fenny. What's more, the aggrieved parishioners who met with Jim over Fenny's mistreatment of their sons regaled him for turning the errant priest over to the church's hierarchy. Were that not enough, as the weeks passed, members who had left because of Fenny were returning. Publicly, things were going robustly well for Father James Bonds. Jim had not spoken with Jade in the month since he met with the Archdiocese on the issues at Holy Spirit. She was on his mind every day. On Wednesday, December 6th, he received a letter with Jade's return address on the envelope. What could this be? Dear John, a reconnection? He tore it open, immediately noticing her elegant handwriting. Dear Jim, there is no easy way to write this, but having been out of touch, I felt I must let you know that I am getting married on the 30th. I miss you. I pray for you daily. Love always. Jade. Just as she had said some months back, Jade was marrying Jeff Knowles, the renowned architect. Up until now, the thought was an abstraction. The letter made it a cold reality. She had loved him as no one other than Jewel had. She would have married him. In fact, she had loved him selflessly, not wanting him to compromise his values by leaving the priesthood for her. If she had to move on, at best loving him from afar, she would do that. She wanted what was best for him, irrespective of her personal wishes. The letter was in the same selfless vein, short, to the point, and devoid of any requested response. He was free to react in any way he chose, or not react at all as she started a new life. He could have had her all to himself. Now another man was going to have as happy a new year as one could have ringing in 1990 in a marital bed with the classy and beautiful Jade Wilson. Knowles won't care if he misses some of the New Year football games, given the sexual entertainment Jade was certain to provide. How often does a woman like Jade come around, he wondered silently. He had met no one like her since Jewel, more than two decades ago. What should he do? Should he try to see her? risking the overwhelming emotion that could engulf him at the sight of her? And what good would that do unless he wanted to resume his relationship with her? They had talked about maintaining contact, even if she married Knowles, even writing her own wedding vows to avoid the forsaking all others phrase. But that would be incredibly complicated for her and suffused with guilt for him. No, if he were to see her, it would have to be with all but a marriage proposal. Was he willing to do that? He could have left the priesthood months ago, but felt his holy commitment was more important. And what about Jade? Was it fair to have her even consider aborting an impending marriage to a man who loved her in exchange for a life with someone as noncommittal as Jim had been? How about Knowles? 
It was bad enough that he had been carrying on with Jade behind Noel's back. Was he now going to take her, as David did Bathsheba, from her husband? Remembering how David had arranged Uriah's death so he could have Bathsheba, he felt this could all but kill Knowles emotionally. There were precious few women who could match up to Jade. Clearly, Knowles knew the solid gold quality of his love interest, and he was man enough to offer a lifetime commitment to her, something Jim hadn't had the stones to do. And what about Jade's son Ricky, now playing college basketball? If he went public with Jade, it would rock the youngster's world, and not in a good way. Ricky knew nothing of his coach's long-term, secret relationship with his mother during his high school years. Imagine the sense of betrayal. But could Jim remain passive and simply watch the Jade train pass by and disappear in the distance? We hope you enjoyed listening to this excerpt from Where Do We Go From Here? If you would like to hear the entire audiobook, it can be purchased at Amazon.com, Audible.com, and iTunes.com.